Grace to you and peace from God our Father and from our risen and living Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. The word of God that we hear this morning is from the Gospel of Luke chapter 13 verses 31 to 35. On that very day some Pharisees came saying to him, Get out and depart from here for Herod wants to kill you. And he said to them, Go tell that fox, Behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow, and the third day I shall be perfected. Nevertheless, I must journey today, tomorrow, and the day following, for it cannot be that a prophet should perish outside of Jerusalem. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. Oh, how often I wanted to gather you together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, but you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate, and assuredly I say to you, you will not see me until the time comes when you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Sanctify us by your truth, O Lord. Your word is truth. Amen. What does this text teach us about the second petition, Thy kingdom come? In our sermon text this morning, we see Jesus focused, set on his journey to Jerusalem, on completing the work that the Father had given him to do, to go, to die, and to rise again on the third day. Our text, therefore, shows us that Jesus' kingdom comes through the cross. Jesus delivered his kingdom to us by his death and his resurrection. And therefore, when we pray, thy kingdom come, we are praising and thanking Jesus that he did set his face towards Jerusalem and would not be deterred from that trip, that he did die and rise again, that he removed obstacles like we see in our text today, which tried to prevent him from getting to Jerusalem. We furthermore pray that he would remove those same obstacles in our life so that nothing would stand between us and the cross, so that we might learn how to cling to the cross above all other things, just like we were talking in this children's sermon about clinging to that water bottle because it's what gave me uh, clean water in Africa. So we would cling to the cross of Christ as the thing that gives us the, the clear, clean water of life. And that Jesus would therefore remove those obstacles, including often the obstacles we ourselves put in the way. And that finally Jesus would gather us. Isn't that a beautiful picture? That Jesus would gather us like a hen gathers its its chicks, just as he promised, or just as he said he tried to gather the city of Jerusalem. Throughout scripture, Jesus teaches us to forgive to turn the other cheek, to, if someone takes your garment, give them your coat as well, he says. Uh, James reminds us to be swift to hear and slow to speak, for the wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God. In short, the Bible urges us to love and forgiveness and patience, except, except, in our psalm, in the, in the, first pages of your bulletin, it reminds us, be angry, yet without sin. Except in our epistle reading, the way that Paul talks about those people is not exactly 
loving, is it? He talks about them as people who love their belly. Except the way Jesus talks to the Pharisees in our text this morning, again, doesn't really sound loving and peaceful, does it? He opposes them and even warns them. Jesus teaches us to be loving and forgiving in all things, but anything that stands between Jesus and the cross must go. And anything that stands between us and the cross of Christ, we pray that God would oppose it and remove it so that we may not be kept from that cross. That's what we have. Uh, we remember even Peter himself, Jesus rebuked him and said to him, Get behind me, Satan. Why? Because Peter was putting himself between Jesus and that cross. And then we have the same thing in our text this morning as well. These men, these Pharisees, are telling Jesus, Leave. Do not come to Jerusalem. They're opposing God's will, God's plan of salvation. And Jesus opposes them. In verses 32 and 33, Jesus mentions three days. Today, tom tomorrow, and the day after. I'm going to preach and do miracles. And then he repeats the same thing. Today, tomorrow, and the day after. I'm going to journey to Jerusalem. Jesus' words here are about three days. Three days to complete his work. Three days to journey to Jerusalem uh, cannot be taken literally. There is too much in the Gospel of Luke between the chapter here and Jesus' entry into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. There are too many things for it all to fit into three days. For example, we still have both the raising of Lazarus, hasn't been done yet, and uh, Jesus eating with Zacchaeus. Remember that beautiful account of Jesus entering uh, the city and going to eat at Zacchaeus' house. And if we were to take this mention of three days here as literal, three days till Palm Sunday, the raising of Lazarus and the eating with Zacchaeus would have to happen on the same day. So Jesus isn't, isn't being literal here. He's not saying three days until Palm Sunday. But he's emphasizing, he's pointing these Pharisees forward to the promise of the resurrection, isn't he? He's telling them that it will take three days for him to complete the work God has sent him to do. Not three days from this day when he's speaking, but three days from his death until the completion, the resurrection. And he repeats it twice to emphasize, to point us forwards to his death and his resurrection. These men are trying to keep him from Jerusalem, but he points us to the importance of Jerusalem and what he goes there to do. As he told his disciples and the Pharisees and us previously, destroy this temple and in three days I will rebuild it. So when we pray, thy kingdom come, we are thanking Jesus that he set his face, that he made that journey, that he went to Jerusalem. We are thanking him that he fulfilled that work that the Father sent him to do. We are also asking that he would fulfill that work within us, in our hearts as well. That he would bring his kingdom, that he would fulfill that work of his kingdom to us and remove anything that opposes that cross. Well, we often aren't very happy with God when he does remove those obstacles. 
A lot of times that means God is preaching a lot of law to us to teach us our sin so that we learn to repent and bow before the cross, and that's a very painful thing. We saw that in our Old Testament reading, didn't we? That Jeremiah preaching the law, warning them about the consequences of their sin. He was trying, God was trying to draw the people to the cross. He was trying to remove that obstacle of their stubborn hearts, and they did not like it very much. We often also don't like it when God preaches that law to us, but when we pray, thy kingdom come, we are asking that Jesus would remind us of our sin, as painful as it might be, to remove those things that keep us from the cross and bring us to Jesus. In our text, <clears throat> some Pharisees come and tell Jesus, you need to leave, you need to go away, depart from Jerusalem, because Herod is seeking your life. What's the motivation of the Pharisees? Why do they approach Jesus with this warning? That's a question that has been debated in, in Christian churches almost since the, the first century. And there are some who, oh, they put the best construction on these Pharisees and say that, oh, they're Jesus' friends, they're actually looking out for him. But the context of the text, at least from what I read there, doesn't seem to hold this up. It seems more likely that actually these Pharisees are not happy with Jesus. They don't want him in Jerusalem, and they're really just using this warning from Herod as an excuse to, to try and get rid of Jesus. For example, Jesus tells them, go, go to Herod, right? And that seems an odd thing for Jesus to say if he didn't already know that, yeah, they were, they're kind of on the same level, on the same party. They're, they're in the same place as Herod. He treats them as Herod's friends. And another example is he, when he says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. And he's weeping over the fact that they won't accept him. He's, he's really warning those Pharisees themselves. The very fact that Luke refers to them as Pharisees as well. The word Pharisees, especially in the Gospels, usually denotes those who are enemies of Jesus. There were some Pharisees who were believers and did follow Jesus, but usually they weren't called Pharisees anymore. They were, called, they were then the disciples, regardless of, of what they were before. So it does seem as if they weren't coming out of a good motive. It does seem as though these men were just trying to get rid of Jesus. But ultimately their motivation isn't what matters, is it? Whether they were friends of Jesus or enemies of Jesus isn't what matters. What matters is... They are trying to divert Jesus from that path that God has set before him. They are trying to keep Jesus from his goal of Jerusalem and his death for our sins. That's true in our own life as well. The motivation isn't what matters. Peter had very good motivation, we would say, when he told Jesus, not far be it from you to go to Jerusalem to die. And yet Jesus said to him, get behind me, Satan. And in our epistle reading as well, when Paul is talking about those men, and he, he's, he does not have nice things to say about them. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly. Their glory is in their shame, who have set their minds on earthly things. A lot of the people whom Paul is talking about there, the, no doubt the first century Christians would have said, well, yeah, but they're such nice guys. They're just trying to help. They're just trying to preach God's word. 
the motivation doesn't matter, does it? What matters is these men are opposing Christ. That's very true in our own life as well. There are many things in our life that we might say seem innocent enough. Well, that's not really a sin. It's not really a sin to, to have money, for example, right? It's not really a sin to go fishing. But however innocent it may look on the surface, if it comes between us and the forgiveness of Christ, if it comes between us and Jesus, if it keeps us from drawing closer to him, we pray that God would remove it from our lives. Fishing is innocent enough, but if it keeps us from church on Sunday morning, it becomes an obstacle. When we pray, thy kingdom come, we are asking that God would remove anything that comes between us and Jesus and his cross, no matter how innocent it may seem on the surface. Jesus ends our text with this warning to the city of Jerusalem. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how often I would gather you, but you were not willing, right? He warns Jerusalem, your house is left. Your house is left to you empty, desolate. It's interesting that that word left there in Greek is the word ephemi. And the word ephemi is used often in scripture, but usually translated with a different word, forgive. This is the same word that the New Testament uses for God's forgiveness. It means left, forgotten, abandoned. And so it's a very beautiful word to describe what Jesus does with our sins, isn't it? That he completely forgets about them. They are, our sins are left behind through the blood of Jesus. As we, we saw in the it's a children's sermon again, uh, how that water filter filters out the, the ashes from the water. God filters out the sin from our lives and leaves it pure. Yet, for those in the city of Jer Jerusalem who are not willing to receive Jesus' forgiveness, that same word is used to describe how God has left them. Not because God didn't want to forgive their sins, but because they were not willing. And that's a strong warning for us as well. If we pull long enough against God's desire to draw us in, eventually God may stop trying. If we reject his forgiveness enough times, long enough, God may let leave us to our sin and abandon us instead of abandoning our sin. We, we read in Genesis, he reminds us, God speaks the same way about the, the evilness of the world at that time. He says, how long shall my soul strive? I'm not going to continue to strive with men forever. But I'm going to give them 120 years, right? The same thing happens here with Jerusalem. Jerusalem, God has striven with Jerusalem. We, we read that in our Old Testament reading in Jeremiah, how God strove with them through the prophets to bring them to Christ, to gather them in. But they were not willing when we pray, thy kingdom come, we are praying that Jesus would gather us as a hen gathers its chicks. We are praying that God would remove from our hearts 
that evil desire which opposes his drawing, which tries to kick. Remember Paul? Remember what God said about Paul? He says, how hard is it for you to kick against the goads? That will, that desire that doesn't, that opposes Christ drawing us in and Christ's forgiveness. We pray thy kingdom come. We're asking that God would demolish that desire within us so that he might draw us to himself and we might rejoice in that forgiveness. That he would not abandon us the way he abandoned Saul. The same thing happened with King Saul who opposed God's will again and again, opposed that drawing of God until God finally opposed Saul. We pray that that would not be our fate, but instead that God would draw us as he does through his word and sacrament, drawing us ever closer to that cross. And we know that promise, that grace of God, which does live in our lives, which does still draw us. So even though we, we need to be alert and take the warning to heart here, we also don't need to be afraid, do we? Because if we're, if we're worried about the warning, that shows that God hasn't abandoned us, that he is still drawing us into that forgiveness, or we wouldn't care about the warning at all. God does, Jesus does draw us like a hen and bring us to him. Jesus' kingdom comes through the cross. And so when we pray thy kingdom come, we are asking that Jesus would oppose anything or anyone who stands between us and that cross, that Jesus would work within us that wonderful grace, that forgiveness of sins, that he would remove our sins, not remove us, but remove our sins from his memory, that he would draw us as a hen draws its chicks. Amen.